We're all tempted to ground our lives in various things in the world, uh, in our careers, that's a common one, or in our accomplishments, or in our relationships, or our family, and you can fill in the blank about what it might be, where are you tempted to ground your life, to, um, to put a, an anchor in the ground for your own sense of being okay, if you could use a technical term like that, um, in your life. I shared this with you before, but in 2005, when um, Tom Brady was being interviewed by Steve Croft in 60 Minutes, he had just finished winning three Super Bowls in four years or something. He's a young quarterback, and people had been telling him, look, you've arrived. Like, this is it. You've made it. And uh, he said to Steve Croft in the interview, he said, me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be saying, I got to the end, I got to what I was trying, you know, the, the holy grail of my profession, winning the Super Bowl, and it just didn't ultimately add up to what everybody said it should in my life. A glimpse into the fact that when we try to ground our life on these things outside of God, that they tend to be slippery or elusive, that what we're looking for ultimately can't be found there. In his 2008 memoir on mortality, uh, the British author Julian Barnes called Nothing to be Frightened of, begins with this line. He says, I don't, he's an agnostic, and he says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Which gives a kind of glimpse into a world which is seeking to find our ground of being in something that's right in front of us, and realizing and being haunted in a sense by the fact that there's something beyond that, that we know those things that are within our grasp, that sometimes we, that we get, ultimately don't provide what we're looking for. That there's still something in us that, that longs for God himself, longs for transcendence, something beyond. Um, the heart of the psalm that we're looking at tonight, and if you go one more it'll pop up, the heart of the psalm on Psalm 63 is, is this conviction that my soul is anchored in God. My soul can only find what it's looking for, can only find rest if it finds its anchor ultimately in God himself, rooted in the, the being of God. Three times, well, this, this psalm is three different stanzas, beginning in verse 1, verse 5, and verse 9. In each of those stanzas, the Hebrew word for soul is found in the text. It's also found in verse 8 as well. And we hear the word soul, and we don't really know what to do with it, but uh, in the way, of, the way of thinking of the Old Testament people, the word soul meant something more like vitality or life or being, something that kind of, a word that, that comprises the whole of who I am as a human being. And the, the message of this psalm, because we see that word popping up again and again, is essentially the ground of your being, the, the, the thing that anchors your sense of life and being okay, has to be God has to be God himself. We're obviously constantly not told that in the world in which we live and the, the stories that we hear all day long. It's fascinating to notice that the, the, um, the context for this psalm is the wilderness. That God has to take David out of this place of comfort where the palace and all of his riches and his army, and now David's on the run from either Saul in the first episode or his son Absalom in the second episode where he's running for his very life in the wilderness. It's actually interesting if you think about the, the Old Testament narrative, the nation of Israel, God's people, 
God rescues them through the Red Sea from Egypt and slavery, takes them out into the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that they have to learn this lesson that their soul is grounded in God alone. They're able to depend upon God. They're taught the lesson of dependence by the manna that comes every day for them to eat, by the water that God provides in the desert places through the rock and miraculous provision that their clothes and their sandals don't wear out for 40 years. It's as if God's saying at the beginning of your life, my people, I want to teach you that you depend on me, that your life is grounded in me. Similarly, God's son, Jesus, that we proclaim and celebrate in the church is baptized and given his vocation as the son of God, as Messiah, and then he's sent off into the wilderness, if you remember this part, where he's tested and tried and where he's stripped away from the things that he could put his hope in or his grounding in. And when he's tempted then to turn stones into bread, when he was very hungry, he says to the enemy, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Quoting Deuteronomy 8, a passage that they had realized and learned as they were at the end of their wilderness journey as well. So often God takes us into these places, and it could be that you're in a place like that right now in your life as you walk into this space tonight. A wilderness. A place where the props that typically hold us up are being stripped away. And I want to encourage you, if that's where you find yourself tonight, to ask God, what are you teaching me? How is it that you're using my circumstances right now to teach me something about this deep truth that's communicated in Psalm 63? That you are the ground of my soul. That I could have everything else, but if I don't have that, that I'm missing what I ultimately need and what I ultimately long for. So that's the heart of the psalm. It's the ground of our soul is found in God alone. But I want to ask them moving forward from that, is so what does that produce then in the life of somebody who affirms that conviction? As I presume that many of you here tonight do. Some of you may not. This may sound a bit strange. But I trust that as you're along with us that you're seeing why we believe this. Why we would say something that our soul is grounded in God alone. But then I want to ask, so what does that produce in us, in our lives? What does that lead to in our lives? And we see first in this psalm that it leads to an earnest seeking. Verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, just to clarify, the kind of seeking that the psalmist is talking about is not you kind of thinking on a Friday night, well, I want to watch a movie. Which one should I watch? And you're seeking for the thing that you want to do that night and you're looking through Netflix. And then you just decide, no, I'd rather not watch a movie. I think I'll just go and play, you know, I won't go that route. I'll go and uh, hang out with my friends. Let's say play Nintendo or something. That's ridiculous. Um, They probably don't exist anymore. Uh, But, you know, I'll I'll go do something else. That's not the kind of seeking where you're just, ah, not really into that tonight. I'll do something different. It's more like, and you get the words from the psalmist here of uh, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry, weary land where there is no water. I enjoy backpacking. I enjoy getting out in the mountains. And often when you do, you'll drive pretty far. Actually, my first car was a CJ5 Jeep Renegade, which was tiny and it could go anywhere. And you'd drive way back in the backcountry to a trailhead. And then you'd hike for miles and days and enjoy the, the backcountry. But the first thing, and if you've done a lot of backpacking uh, in your life, you'll know the first thing when you're coming back to the car is you go, okay, and you do this even in the front country, not just in the back country, but all right, where are my keys? 
And it, and it would be like you, you get back to the car after a long, you know, multi-day trip. You're hungry and you're thirsty. You're sweaty and dirty. And you know that you need to find your keys. And you look to where you thought your key was and it wasn't there. Now, this never happened to me in my experience out there. But I think the fear of it always sort of weighed over me as I would come back to the car. And you know that you'd be seeking for the key with all your might, looking, ripping through everything in your backpack to find it because you depended upon that to get to where you needed to go, to get out of the situation that you were in. And in many ways, that's the kind of seeking. When this conviction, God, you are the ground of my soul that runs through Psalm 63, when that grabs hold of our hearts, it leads us to seek him with this kind of, as if my life depends on it, because it does. An active, engaged seeking a pursuing, a yearning for him. Now, I want to clarify that that kind of seeking doesn't necessarily mean uh, an intensity. I can be intense. You all know that about me if you know me. I can be intense. And I'm not saying that intensity is necessarily bad. Um, but, I, but I know that sometimes when I, when I say something like earnestly seeking, it starts to make you feel fatigued and tired. And I don't want to imply that seeking means that you have to be that kind of super intense about everything in order to be following what this conviction does in your life. But what it means maybe is more just to help you get into this. It means potentially more like an orientation in your life through which you're putting into your life certain disciplines and habits and people and practices that you know will help you find God. So you come to worship week after week with the people of God, where the story of God's redemption will be told. Or you put people in your life in a neighborhood group or a triad that you know when you see them that they're going to lift your eyes to something different than what's just directly in front of you. Or the kinds of habits that you develop in reading scripture or opening uh, or spending time in prayer. And you put those things in your life and you put that orientation directed Godward in your life. So you put things in out of a sense of of knowing that this is going to meet you, that this is going to be what you ultimately need and bring you to God who grounds your soul. And you do disciplines and habits, and I use those words specifically because you don't always feel that you're in the wilderness desperately crying out as the psalmist is here. You may not feel that way at all tonight. Sometimes, in fact, you don't feel God much at all. You don't feel a thirst for him, even though you know that your grounding is in him, that your soul needs him. You know, if you've lived this Christian life for any length of time, that there is ebbs and flows. And so I think about this seeking in terms of a a specific way of encouraging us in the moment today of saying, put these things in our lives so that in the ebb and the flow, we're constantly being brought to him. But it's, again, it's looking for the keys when you've gotten off the trail. It's not trying to find a movie on a Friday night. It's still an urgent kind of seeking. It's still a, there's still a desperation even in it when it's even in the normal mode. Because you know the truth of the psalm that your soul is grounded in God. So it leads to the seeking in our lives. When we have this conviction, the seeking then leads to seeing. And the psalmist, and we're promised this from Jesus. He says, seek and you will find. The psalmist, when he begins to seek after God, we read in the psalm that he finds God. He sees God. So he says in verse 2, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. In verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night. 
He's seeing God. He's beholding God. And what he sees specifically is this great and mighty ruler. Power and glory are just two words that mean sovereignty, essentially. They're code words for God is king and he rules over the earth. So he sees God in his greatness, but not just God in his greatness, way out there somewhere. But then verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life. He sees that the great and ruling king is deeply and radically committed to him. That his power and his glory are not untouchable, but they've been given out for his sake. For his benefit and his blessing. That idea of God being better than life, God's steadfast love being better than life itself, means that no matter how good it gets in your life, in your circumstances, that you always have something far better. And it means that no matter how bad it gets, that you always have the very best. And that's important. That sense of God is everything and better than anything that I could enjoy or experience. So seeking leads to seeing. And seeing then leads to these additional things that we see in the psalm. Just to cover them quickly, uh, verse 5, one of the best verses in this great psalm. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. The psalmist saying, I sought you. I saw you. I saw your sovereignty and your love for me. And now my soul is satisfied. My thirst has been quenched. I've drank of the living water. I'm not thirsty anymore. I'm no longer in this desert place seeking something. I've found what I was looking for. And it's met me. There's satisfaction. There's singing and praising going on as well. Verse 7, I will sing for joy. Verse 3, Um, My lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. When we seek and we see and then we're satisfied, there's a singing and a praising, a worshiping of this God that comes in our lives. There's also a supplication. There's a prayer offered up. Verse 4, in your name I will lift up my hands. Because I see you, because I see how great and your commitment to me, I'm going to lift my life back to you through prayer, through supplication. Or verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. If you've listened closely, a lot of these are S's. Satisfaction, singing, supplication, and security. My soul clings to you, and your right hand will uphold me. The psalmist is reminded in drawing near to God that his enemies will meet their end, that God will protect him and preserve him. And so he rejoices in this God who is the ground of his being. I want to close by bringing this back to earth for just a second, because I realize that a lot of this sounds great, but in your lived experience in your Christian life, that oftentimes you don't experience the same kind of seeking and seeing, and then all that falls from that, the singing flowing out of your heart, the satisfaction in your soul. And I want to ask them, so how do we get it from just sounding like good religious language to something that actually is my life? that's changed me from the inside out, where I've come to to life in a different way. And I want to offer to you that the key for this is not just the insight of God as the ground of my soul, which then fuels the seeking, seeing, and all that comes from that. But it's in this little word in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. It's in that possessive pronoun. One of the beauties of Psalm 63 is that it's not just a dry theological treatise, as many of the Psalms are not. It's, it's full of humanity. It's full of warmth. It's full of a heart that's overflowing. 
It's intimate. It's personal. It's deeply real. The trick of moving from a place where we just see this as something distant to us, where our lives are kind of going on, is actually beginning to make the truths of who God is our own. We give you a little thought experiment for how that might feel or the difference. It's, it's the difference between going to the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum as a tourist who's looking at the great and beautiful works of art and the beautiful architecture of the house that she had and admiring it as if you're just passing through. And what it would be like if you went to, to the museum one day and somebody just handed you the keys and said, hey, this is yours now. This is your house, and you own all of this art, and this, is, this belongs to you. Huge difference, just in terms of how that impacts you, from being a passing-through tourist who's just observing beautiful things. Yes, God, you're amazing. Yes, you're powerful. Yes, yeah, you love us. I know. But just kind of passing through. Versus, this is mine. God, you are my God. So that God is not just the sovereign king, But he's your sovereign king. God is not just the God who forgives sin, but God has forgiven your sin. God is not just the God who gives hope to people, but he's given you hope. God isn't the God who does healing, but God has healed you. God isn't just the God who satisfies our longings, as we sang before, but God has satisfied your longing. All the difference in the world lies between the sort of distant statement and the one that's clinging to this for ourselves God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul longs for you E. Stanley Jones was a missionary in India in the early 20th century and he had a thing he called the round table where he would invite people he did a lot of his ministry among the intellectual elite of the Indian society He would invite them to come, uh, particularly from the church, and he would invite them to come in, Christians in the society, to this thing he called the round table. And at the round table, he would only ask one question. And it was simply this. It was, who is Christ to you in experience? Who is Christ to you in experience? The brilliance, I believe, of E. Stanley Jones in that moment was he was trying to get us to this my word of saying you can believe all this stuff, you can proclaim all these things about a great king, but if it's not personal, if it doesn't come down and land in your heart, then it misses something. And he tells the story of somebody in this uh, group that communicates well, somebody who understood the my part of this, the key to unlocking the seeking and seeing and supplication and satisfaction and security. This is how uh, Jones says it. He says, in the midst of this group sat an unassuming retiring youth with bare feet, dressed in simple homespun. He was an M.A. student, a convert from the Aborigines. There were millenniums of spiritual and social culture between the rest of this group and this youth. But as he began to speak, every eye was soon fastened on him. For he was evidently speaking out of reality as he told of what Christ meant to him. It was simple, direct, and real. Christ's touch was upon his life and lo he had leaped beyond the group around him and had gained life's secret and meaning as men sat listening they instinctively felt that he had found the way of life and that they had missed it 
a beautiful glimpse into what it means to say, oh God, you are my God. If you wrestle with that in your life, and I trust many of you do, I know many of you do, then the thing I want to close with tonight is asking, where is it that we see God? Where is it that we, when we need to be reminded of His steadfast love for us, that we turn? It's to the cross. The psalmist sees the sovereign ruling of God and sees the steadfast love of God. We see those things as New Testament believers, those after the life of Jesus. We see them most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's there that we see that he overcame our enemies, our greatest enemies, and won the victory. It's there that he was enthroned as king over all the cosmos. And the resurrection is proof of his enthronement on the cross. And it's there at the cross that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, that God has steadfast love for his world and for you. Because he would go that far. Even when we weren't seeking him as the psalmist is in Psalm 63. God seeks us. And Paul says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's at the cross that we see Jesus' love poured out for us. It's at the cross that we see that he is our Lord. That he's dealt with our deepest sin and shame and guilt. That he set us free so that we can embrace him as ours. That we can worship him as ours. That we can pray to him as ours. That we can enjoy the deep satisfaction that he brings in our lives. So look to the cross. Paul says to the Corinthians, I resolved nothing to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's at the cross, it's meditating on the cross, it's seeing the steadfast love of God in the cross that we can go from tourists to owners in a sense. That this can go from something distant to something deeply intimate like the psalmist knows in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Pray that we would know him as ours in this community and celebrate him in that way in our lives. Amen.